China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined by Andrew Batson, China Research Director at Gavical Dragonomics. Today we'll be discussing his blog post, Xi's New Growth Synthesis. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jude. So wanted to start by asking how you first became interested in China and as a related question, how did you find your way to this career of thinking and writing about China's political economy? Yeah, my career pathway is a bit weird. The way I got into being a China expert, I think is different from a lot of other people that I know who do similar things. So a lot of the people that I've met over the years do the kind of thing that I do. They got into China-related careers because they had some kind of early life experience that pushed them in that direction. So they studied Chinese in high school, maybe, or they have a family connection in China that made it natural to be curious about China. So actually, I don't have any of those things. You know, I'm a white kid. I grew up in a small town in southeastern Louisiana. My exposure to China growing up was that my dad would take us out to a Chinese restaurant on Friday nights. That's kind of it. I basically became interested in China because I lived in China, not the other way around. And that happened through a pretty circuitous chain of events. But basically, when I was trying to break into journalism, get a job, went around talking to people, I was introduced to some people who were involved in journalism in Asia. They introduced me to some people. They introduced me to some people. And I ended up getting connected with this consulting company in Beijing, of all places, and the consulting company was looking for educated young people that they could underpay and exploit. So, you know, naturally I was interested in that. And, you know, at the time I hadn't really ever given much thought to China particularly, but here was someone who was willing to pay me to go live in a foreign country. And that seemed like a pretty interesting chance that I shouldn't say no to. So I said, sure, I'll give it a shot. And then I showed up in Beijing and I basically started from scratch. Right? I didn't have any knowledge of Chinese when I first moved here. I didn't have that much background knowledge, didn't have many preconceptions. And because of that, I was immediately confronted with this huge puzzle, right? I'd placed myself in this completely different physical, cultural, social environment, and I had to figure out how it worked. In a sense, that's kind of what I've been doing ever since. I think the other piece of my biography that's maybe relevant to this, and this has kind of shaped my approach, is that my job for a long time now has been to analyze the Chinese economy. I actually wasn't trained as an economist. I was trained as an anthropologist. And at school, my undergraduate degree was in anthropology. We had a very rigorous exposure, I would say, to a kind of more traditional mid-century style of social science, a little bit different than what people get taught today in most places. And kind of the organizing questions that we were asked to investigate was you know, how do human social systems function and how do we understand the diversity of human social systems or the differences, what those differences mean. And I think if I look back at stuff I've been doing over the years, basically the question I've been trying to answer in kind of different from different angles and in different ways is what is the nature of China's system? How does its system differ from other systems? And I think the reason I asked the question in that way is because I was exposed to this particular school of social science at a formative age. Andrew, one of the things I wanted to ask you, and actually I'm going to make this a new feature on the podcast, I always appreciate sections of podcasts where they ask for book recommendations. 
but I usually find that that entails me having to go spend $30 on a book. And then realistically, I'm probably not going to read the book. It's going to end up in the pile here. You can see my behind me. But I've often found sometimes the most helpful tool for me is when someone says something, some sort of framework or heuristic or insight that actually is an aha moment and is a tool that I can then use to bring to bear on thinking about China. So as I wrote to you in an email, I wanted to use you as a guinea pig for a new running feature of the podcast, which is, is there some sort of borrowing from Daniel Dennett, an intuition pump or a heuristic or some insight that you have heard or developed that helps you think through China? And just for the audience, I'm not sure this is a heuristic as such, but just to give an example, you often hear some people say, China's not a monolith. Now, that's a really simple comment, but I think people who articulate that, what they're trying to do is to get to a deeper insight where they want folks to embrace complexity of the Chinese system rather than thinking of it as a Xi Jinping in the mothership turning dials to get the system to operate as he wants. You think a lot about thinking about China. So I wonder if I could put the question to you. Is there some sort of, again, heuristic intuition pump insight framework that you find very useful and might be useful to others? Yeah, I, I thought quite a bit about this. It's a tricky question. So I came up with something. I'm not sure it's going to be an aha moment for you, but maybe it'll be helpful for other people because this is something that's come up in a lot of conversations I've had about China. So one basic kind of simple thing about China that I keep coming back to is that it's really important to realize, I think, that Chinese people mostly believe that China is a great nation that should be at the forefront of the world. So what I mean by this is not that the Chinese people are all these kind of rabid, frothing-at-the-mouth nationalists. That's not all my point. What I mean is more that there's kind of a baseline assumption across all kinds of people that you meet different classes, different political beliefs, that essentially there's no particular reason why China should not be the best in the world at any given thing, regardless of what that thing is. And if China isn't the best in the world, then it can be, and they just have to work harder to get there. When I was living in China, I encountered this attitude a lot, so it didn't seem exceptional to me or that remarkable. It was just part of the background. It's just there all the time. I've, I've spent more time in other developing countries and more time in developed countries as well. I've really started to appreciate that this attitude is kind of unusual. There's a lot of small countries or poor countries. The people there are, in fact, not really confident that they can be the best in the world at any particular thing. They're very conscious that they lag behind other countries in the world, that their position is relatively poor. And it doesn't seem necessarily plausible to them that that's going to fundamentally change. And that belief might not be wrong, right? I'm just going to you know, pick some like country names out of a hat here. So right, if we're thinking about, oh, is it, are we talking about Spain or Indonesia? Is it really realistic for those countries to have aspirations to be, for example, the global center for artificial intelligence research? Might not be, but it is kind of realistic for China to have those aspirations. And I guess the other thing I, I would say about this is, again, this is kind of an attitude. It's not a political belief or a political creed. So a lot of Chinese people have this attitude, but it's compatible with like a lot of different political beliefs. So it doesn't determine necessarily like where China ends up. I think if you talk to Chinese people who are more on the right of the political spectrum, in kind of Chinese domestic terms, they may tend to think that the way that China becomes the best in the world 
like an even better place is by converging with the global ideals of whether this be the rule of law, you know, market economics, individual freedom, and so on. And for Chinese people who are more on the left of the political spectrum, again, in the domestic context, they may tend to think more it's about China following its own path and using the power of the socialist state to shape outcomes. So how China gets to be the best of the world is something that Chinese people are debating amongst themselves. But they, I, think, I think they all share the premise that China is going to keep becoming a better place, that it is a great nation, is going to become an even greater nation in the future. So I think if you wanted to offend every Chinese person across the entire political spectrum, what you would do is to deny that premise or try to throw roadblocks in its way. Before we get to your blog post, let me ask you one additional high elevation question. I read your professional day job writing and I also read your blog posts. And I like both, but what I especially like about the blog is I can see that you're still puzzling through trying to understand the Chinese political system. And you draw on comparative writings, you sort of puzzle through government documents or party documents that come out. And we're going to talk about one of these posts in a minute. But I wanted to, before we get into that, ask you, we're at a time where I think a lot of people see massive change occurring in China in its growth model and its political system. I'm curious, as you draw on your experience in China and analyzing China, and as we record this, you're in Beijing right now, when you think about China's political system or political economy, are there beliefs you had which you now just fundamentally question? Are there beliefs you've long held which still hold constant when you think about the structure of China's political system and its economy? In other words, like, what do you think you know about China in a deep, true sense? And what are the areas of your knowledge about China where the theses are tentative or shifting? Thank you for putting the question in that way, because it is true that I'm still a student of this stuff and will continue to be a student you know, probably for the rest of my life. So it's a process to figure this stuff out. I think one thing that's changed for me over the last 10 years is that I feel like I do have a better understanding of the Chinese political system than I did before. So I've done a lot more reading about that and I've also just had more time to observe how things work and talk to people. So at the moment, I have reasonably high confidence in understanding that I understand the basic parameters of the Chinese system. And the key concept for me that's been useful is basically the idea that China is a Leninist system. And this is a technical term, not a term of abuse. I learned this from reading in particular Joseph Fusmiths, who's a well-known scholar of Chinese politics, and also this guy, Ken Jowett, who's kind of an older scholar of the Soviet Union. And a Leninist system, it's fundamentally a hierarchical, top-down political system in which the cadres, the members of the Communist Party, are mobilized to pursue political goals. Right? So this mobilization is a key idea, and the political goals are a key idea. And the reason these are important is because China is not actually governed by a neutral civil service or a neutral bureaucracy that's based on following written rules of procedure and implementing regulations in kind of a value-neutral way. Right? So if we look at China, we see something that appears on its surface to resemble such a bureaucracy, but actually that bureaucracy is subordinate to 
the Leninist political system, or to put it a different way, the Leninist political system kind of interpenetrates the bureaucracy at every level. So that's on the political side. And then on the economic side, I've also spent a lot of time trying to figure out what exactly is the nature of China's system. And the term that I come back to, which is maybe not ideal, but seems to be the best that we have available in English anyway, is state capitalism. And so this is what I use. This is just a shorthand term where you have an economy in which there are high levels of government ownership, high levels of government intervention, but these coexist with market mechanisms, the decentralized setting of prices, and so on. So I think in China's case, this kind of political system and this kind of economic system reinforce each other. They're highly compatible, for obviously for historical reasons, but also in kind of logical way. Right? So the key dynamic of a Leninist system, I think, is that the leaders, they do not just feel that they are entitled to direct the development of their nation in a particular way, but they're actually obligated to. That's their job. This is the reason the government has power. The government's role is not to use its power to provide a neutral framework for which individual people and companies and different entities can all pursue their own goals and aspirations. This is what I take to be the kind of defining conceit of Western liberalism, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Government's job is just to enable all this. In the system, that's not the government's job. The job is to push the whole society to go in a certain direction. And so if that's the underlying political conception, it's actually difficult to have a fully market-based economy because the government, the state, the party is not inclined to just accept the market outcomes. They're inclined to mobilize the society to achieve certain goals and use the different tools they have available. And that's part of what these state-owned enterprises and different regulatory interventions are for. And in the other direction, right, the fact that you have this whole cavalcade of state-owned enterprises and different government institutions to organize and direct different parts of society justifies or encourages a Leninist approach. Because otherwise, you know, what is this stuff for? Why do we have all this state ownership? Why do we have all this state intervention? It must be for some reason. If there's no reason to use it, we could just get rid of it. And so since they don't want to get rid of it, they find reasons to use it. So basically, like my intellectual process of the last 10 years has been specifically is to try to figure out what's the reason for all the weird things about China's economy that people obsess about. So why do we have such high rates of investment? Why are these kind of boom and bust cycles? Why is China able to have high rates of economic growth, even though it doesn't have very good legal institutions? All these kind of puzzles. In my view, basically, it all comes back to this basic political structure, this basic political economy of having a Leninist system. So that's the thing I feel reasonably certain about for now. I don't know if you've ever read Michael Oakeshott, the London School of Economics political philosopher who heyday was in the 50s and 60s, but I've often thought about him because he talked about two different conceptions of statehood. One is what he called a democracy, which is, as you just previously described, which is a political system that is not ends-oriented, but is an institutional setup with laws and apolitical bureaucrats. And then he talks about, contrast that with this conception of teleocracy, obviously coming from the teleos meeting, moving towards an end. And he's writing this in description of the Soviet Union. But I've always liked his work on teleocracy because I think it jibes with what you were just saying about China as a system oriented towards objectives or goals. And put it more crude way, I thought about the 
party as, as something like a shark. Sharks die if they stop moving forward. But in a fundamental sense, the Chinese system isn't structured absent some conception of a goal to be striving for. You couldn't run it. Cadres wouldn't know what to do if it didn't have that sort of continual churn of plans and objectives and meta objectives, whether these are high-level Marxist aspirations or just five-year plans. So it is a unique feature of of these Leninist systems, which I appreciate you highlighting this because I do think it's important. Let me grab the steering wheel and turn the direction suddenly, if I may, which is I wanted to now start getting into some of the substance of what you've been thinking and writing about, both in your blog post on Xi's new growth thesis, but also some of the other thinking and writing you've been doing about the growth of securitization in the policy agenda in China. And I thought I might start with something which I don't have a clear answer to and think you might take a better stab at it, which is before we talk about securitization or the growth of securitization, I think one is just there's confusion that I hear about how external analysts and observers think about growth and political stability. I often hear people, indeed, just in the past few weeks, I've heard various people say, on the one hand, Xi Jinping doesn't care about growth. He's willing to supplement growth for higher objectives, whether these be Taiwan or to kind of build a fortress economy that can withstand what he sees as a containment, suppression, encirclement strategy by the United States. Then I'll hear people say, well, if growth falls below 3%, then the Communist Party is doomed, so they have to find ways to revive the economy. And you're probably old enough to remember, too, I think this was back in the mid to late 2000s. I just remember there was always this thing in news articles where it would say, if Chinese growth drops below 8%, I don't know why 8% or how we got there, but if it drops below 8%, you're going to see massive instability in the system. So how do you at a higher level think about trade-offs or the connection between rates of growth, and maybe that's not the right way to think about growth, but economic activity and growth and its relationship to political stability in the Chinese context, not in the context of Norway or the United States, where I think the relationship is different. Do you buy the logic that whatever the number is, whether it's 8%, 3%, or 1%, there is an absolute floor underneath which if growth craters it will have a demonstrative rippling effect of instability. Do you think this is not the right way we should think about how they think about the growth stability relationship? Or is my question so incohate that you have a better way that I could frame this? Yes. Actually, I mean, no. Uh, So the answer to most of your questions is no. So yeah, no, I don't think there's a floor to growth that kind of triggers instability. I remember very well this debate over the 8% growth and social stability from back in 2000s. And this was kind of one of my formative experiences as a China analyst was trying to understand and intervene in this debate. So actually, I have pretty detailed memory of this. So my recollection is when that came up back in the day, it was because somebody had done a calculation. I think it might have been the World Bank, but I'm not sure. And they basically said, oh, if you look at the number of new jobs that are created every year and then you divide that by the GDP growth rate, this shows that each point of GDP growth generates X number of jobs. Therefore, this implies that you need a certain amount of GDP growth to have enough jobs because based on the population, number of college graduates, you're going to need this number of jobs. And therefore, you have to have this number of GDP growth to deliver that. 
So as economic analysis, obviously, this is totally nonsense, or maybe it wasn't obvious because a lot of people said it, but I mean, it's total nonsense. So there's no such thing of a fixed relationship between GDP growth and job creation in any economy anywhere. And anyway, I think the calculations in the Chinese case didn't make that much sense because government actually doesn't have very good data on job creation. So the numbers that were plugging into that equation were probably bogus in the first place. I think that this kind of argument got traction inside of China and outside of China, but I think it got traction for somewhat different reasons. So I think inside China, the reason it got traction, the reason people found it attractive is because there was a group of people in China who wanted the government to focus on employment rather than GDP growth, right? So they saw the pursuit of GDP growth as creating all kinds of distortions and problems. Fundamentally, what really matters for people's lives, for prosperity is job creation. So we should really think about GDP growth as a means of creating jobs rather than as this kind of abstract target we're trying to hit for no particular reason. And that idea, I think, has been quite influential in China. When Li Keqiang, the late lamented, was premier, he often said that employment was the most important thing. So at the level of rhetoric, that seems to be influential. But I think, you know, if you actually look at how he or how other administrations actually ran the economy, it was pretty obvious that they it's not true, that the labor market was not what was driving how they managed the economy or what key decisions were being made. It was usually other kinds of cyclical indicators of the economy, even the property market or industry or what have you. And I think, to be honest, they probably don't really have enough accurate information about the labor market to use it as a guide to short-term macro policy. Outside of China, I think the reason people latched on to this idea was because it played to certain prejudices or preconceptions about the nature of China's political system. So I think there's a tendency for people to think that, for people in the US particularly, to think that the Chinese people living under an authoritarian regime, that they must inherently always be dissatisfied with the regime and they must always be looking for ways to overthrow it. And then if they're not being you know, constantly pacified with lots of money, they would just rise up the instant that happened. You know, so I think as with many things, there is a grain of truth of this. So if we look comparatively across different countries, different forms of government, you can correct me on this, but I think the finding is that authoritarian regimes tend to be a little more fragile and have less popular legitimacy than other kinds of political systems. So there is more of an issue for them. But I think we both know that it's just not true that daily life in China is some kind of dystopian hellscape that is going to force people to rise up in revolt. The economy is not so good. And then I think the other idea about political system that's been very influential outside China is this idea that there's a social contract, right? That people in China traded in a more or less explicit way political freedom for economic growth. So we'll accept not having all these political freedoms as long as enough prosperity is delivered to compensate us for this loss. There is some truth to this. I think economic performance is one of the ways in which the government shows people that it's doing a good job, it deserves their support. But obviously, again, maybe not obviously, but I think this is the case. It's not true that people's satisfaction with the government is mechanically related to the GDP numbers or mechanically related to economic performance in such a specific way. So yeah, I don't think that there is any particular fixed relationship between political stability in the sense of at least of popular unrest and economic growth, that there's some kind of trigger that we can identify that would economic problems become serious enough that that's going to have an impact on the 
foundations of the political system. Let me ask you another related question, and this is very much a live topic of discussion now, which is how economic growth is being rebalanced in relation to another goal, which is security or national security. You've written on this, there's stuff in your blog on this, so I don't want to make you regurgitate what you've already said. That being said, I might ask you to regurgitate what you've already said on this. This is a really interesting question for me. Part of it is a little bit of Freudian psychology of people trying to get in Xi Jinping's head. I will hear people say, Xi Jinping doesn't care about growth. I don't agree with that statement, but I understand, as you were just saying, there's a kernel of truth there. We are seeing security rise to the fore of the active policy agenda in ways that are clearly at an elevated pitch from previous leadership groups. But I wanted to get your thoughts on this. If someone says to you, is growth out the window and it's about security, what's your response? If someone says they're trying to balance growth and security, what's your response? How do you think through what on the surface, to some extent, it appear to be zero-sum trade-offs. What's your thesis for what the Chinese are trying to do and how these two objectives sit together or separate? So yes, yeah, so the way I think about this goes back to this organizing concept of the Leninist system that's organized around a mobilizational goal for the whole society. So for me, I think the fundamental way to understand what Xi Jinping is doing, particularly since his second term, is that he is changing the mobilizational goal. And that the mobilizational goal had been basically the same from 1978 until 2017, right, when she gave his speech at the party congress. And in that speech, he basically said in so many words that there had been one goal in the reform era, which was basically the pursuit of economic growth or development, prosperity, different synonyms for this, and that that was over. And that now China is on a different trajectory. I think where I would differ slightly from the way that you phrase the question is that I don't think that he's clearly articulated what the new trajectory is. So I think security is part of this new message, but it hasn't been made that clear. So what was very clear and continues to be very clear is that the pursuit of economic growth has been downgraded in importance relative to other goals. It's not gone. They don't care about growth. But the system was previously organized around the pursuit of economic growth, and now it is not. What is the system organized around now? Well, I would say it's not that clear, (laughs) to be perfectly honest. And this is why I think that in a way that there's a lot of political instability in China. And this goes back to our previous question of where you're asking about political stability in the Chinese context. So I think if you think in terms of this, China having a Leninist political system, where what's fundamentally important is having the mobilizational goal and then communicating that mobilizational goal. In that context, actually, China's in a moment, I would say, of political instability because the new mobilizational goal has not been clearly communicated. There's kind of some directional guidance, but the actual goal is is not that clear, right? So when I say that there's political instability, I don't mean that there's different factions within the Communist Party or that there's going to be riots in the street or a coup or anything like that, right? She has very tight political control. There's very little room for any competing power centers to emerge. 
but I think there's instability in the system's own terms, right? Just there's ambiguity about what the mobilizational goal is. There's ambiguity about what people should be doing, right? So he's talked about different things as one of the organizing conceptions in his original speech in 2017 was this idea of a better life. That's about as vague as you can possibly get, right? So that has all kinds of different components. So, oh, we shouldn't pursue economic growth. We should pursue a better life instead. What does that mean in practice? I think nobody knows. More recently, there's been a lot of emphasis on national security, the technological self-sufficiency. I think these are very specific goals, but are they enough to function as like the overall goal for the whole system? I think the problem here is that this talk about national security and self-sufficiency, the only thing that really makes those make sense and seem convincing to people is the fact that there are worries about China getting into a conflict with the U.S. So you have all these... U.S. has put tariffs, technological sanctions on China. China clearly has to have a response to this. I think that's why these talk about technological self-sufficiency has gotten a lot of traction and is quite popular in China. But I think it would be quite a difficult thing for Xi to kind of come out and say explicitly that the goal for the nation is to prepare for a war with the U.S., because that's not a goal that people are really going to get behind. War is bad. People don't like it. They're not going to go to war if they don't have to. So I think the problem with the security as a mobilizational goal is that it's not an attractive one, fundamentally. You can frame security, the security self-sufficiency issues more as like, oh, we need to do things to protect ourselves, and it's uh, just in case. But I think that doesn't really function as kind of an organizing principle for the whole society. So I think what you've ended up with is this kind of confusing signaling where the government is saying, well, we shouldn't pursue economic growth as aggressively as we did in the past, and we should pursue some of these other things like technological self-sufficiency, like food security, like the preservation of traditional culture. There's a long list of these things, and we should pursue some of these things more aggressively than in the past. But again, that's not that satisfying, and it doesn't fundamentally give the actors in the system very clear guidance about what their priorities should be and how they should make particular decisions. Ultimately, this is my diagnosis about why everyone in China seems so unsettled and seems really uncertain right now. They literally don't know where the country is going. And I don't mean that in kind of like an abstract sense. It's in the sense of the country is organized around having a goal towards which it, it should be proceeding. And people aren't really sure what that goal is. The Leninist system is unsettled. And therefore, the people who live in this system are also unsettled. We'll put a link. You had a really good blog post on what must be the level of relative confusion or uncertainty for cadres in the system who are clearly being transitioned to a new paradigm, but without, as you say, laser-like clarity on, on precisely what's the relative weighting of the various objectives. This does exist at some level in terms of performance indicators that cadres are evaluated on, but it's clear from just anecdotal evidence that those are not sufficient to give actors in the system certainty of action, knowing that basically here's the green zone, here's the yellow, here's the red. And of course, they still live in a world where there still are growth targets and growth expectations, but... Also, depending on where you are, if you're in Guizhou, you probably also have some expectations. You're going to develop some sort of innovation cluster, but you're also going to have some national security imperatives. So it does seem like Xi Jinping is pushing the system into a new level of dysfunctionality. Let me now ask you to pick up your 
rusty, dirty crystal ball, brush it off and see if you can peer into it. I know no one likes to predict the future, especially on China. And I know you're a careful, nuanced thinker. So the answer, I will say it for you on the questions I'm about to ask you is probably, I don't know. But nonetheless, I wanted to get your sense of, you've laid out a picture just now of an incohate, somewhat confused functional policy agenda that is sending multiple signals. And you probably have actors in the system interpreting those signals differently. You have China dealing with a very different external environment. You know, it had very benign external environment from the late 1990s through till fairly recently. You have a political system that is becoming more, in some sense, more capital L Leninist, but also in some ways de-Leninized as Xi Jinping really personalizes the system. I guess the first question is, how strong, how robust and resilient do you think this political economic system is to withstand internal challenges from Xi Jinping sort of trying to move the system or or shift gears and externally, whether it's Chinese corporates now facing a much harder regulatory environment, BRI facing pushback, you kind of pick the policy initiative and there are challenges. I don't think anyone anymore is in the China galactic ascendancy trajectory. Are you China muddles through? Are you China can get its mojo back? Or are you China not on the cliff, but heading in the direction of a more catastrophic hard landing that could be a political hard landing? Or option D, which is whatever, whichever option I didn't list that you think is better. I think there are a lot of issues in the Chinese economy and political system they're trying to deal with. We kind of outlined why it's being challenging to deal with them. I would say that in a medium term sense, my bias is to not be completely pessimistic. And this kind of goes back to what I was talking about at the opening of our conversation, where I feel like there's this sort of general sense among Chinese people that China's going to get better and if they work hard, they can achieve it. So again, I would be frank that this is sort of more of an intuitive sense than something I can justify very rigorously with lots of evidence and statistics. But I do feel like there is a continued momentum in China for it to catch up with the technology and capabilities of other countries. And that catch up can continue to propel China's incomes up over time. But I feel that this is more of a bottom-up process, right? That it's not something that's necessarily driven by all of these government initiatives in terms of industrial policy, R&D subsidies, what have you. And to some extent, this bottom-up dynamism in China exists despite these government policies or even in opposition to them. I think it's still very much a real thing. So we should not assume that it has gone completely away. And... I guess the other thing I would say this, just in terms of global perspective, global impact, is that it's hard to imagine a future scenario in which China becomes internationally irrelevant, right? So maybe China becomes more relevant in a good way, maybe it becomes more relevant in a bad way, but it's very unlikely for it to be less relevant. The shape of the world economy has changed you know, very substantially. And China has huge stocks, for lack of a better word, so huge stocks of manufacturing capacity, of technological capability that are not going to go away, even if the economic outcomes are poor. So maybe the economists like to talk about stocks and flows. So, you know, maybe the flow of new economic activity, i.e. growth, is weak over the next few years. But 
China's already built up a lot. It's 20, 30% of world manufacturing output. That's not going to go away. So I think we should broadly anticipate that even if China faces a lot of challenges, it's going to continue to be relevant in kind of a macro sense and also in several very specific senses, right? It seems pretty obvious that China is very far along the way to becoming the global center of production for clean energy technology that the rest of the world is going to use in the transition away from fossil fuels. So that's almost a done deal, it seems like. To go back kind of more generally, your question about how does China deal with this problems, I think in my day job, the problems that we've been trying to figure out is basically what kind of economic policy decisions does China make given its set of priorities and the fact that the priorities now are clearly different than they were in the past. I think over the past 12 months in China, since basically the COVID restrictions were dropped, there's been a lot of flux, a lot of change. And I think there's this kind of ongoing process of everyone within the system trying to get more clarity on what the overall goal is, right? So officials in the government and also people in the population at large, they're trying to decode the signals. And also the people at the top, so Xi Jinping and his associates, or at the same time, they're trying to fine-tune the signals in order to get the results that they desire, right? So you've seen she come up with various new formulations that try to synthesize what you talked about as the growth and security concerns or new formulations that imply that growth and security are not opposed to one another, right? It's not a zero-sum game. We can do both at the same time and everything will be great. So, in fact, it's a very interesting and uncertain moment for Chinese policymaking. I think there's a general sense that all of the economic problems over the past year have pushed the government to make some tough choices to kind of face up more explicitly to these trade-offs and to try to come up with a more coherent policy agenda. So where does this balance between growth and like the rest of the agenda, security concerns, where this stand now? Obviously. Economic growth is pretty poor right now. A property market is in real trouble. And you're seeing at the margin a little bit more of a pivot back towards growth supporting policies. And so that's what a lot of the economic analysis and discussion domestically is about. It's like, oh, we're getting these positive signals finally. So things are good. But I think what the government is trying to do is to find a new synthesis, right? They want to find a way to have decent economic growth, a way to stabilize the current situation that's compatible with this new political agenda that doesn't involve just giving up and saying, oh, we are wrong to try to pursue this new set of goals. We can actually still pursue this new set of goals and also get these good things. I think a lot of people domestically want to see the old system come back. They want to see the old goal come back. So they want China to pivot away from the pursuit of security, a better life, this different political agenda that, that she has outlined. They want to see the pivot away from that and back towards let's just do economic growth and not worry about the other stuff. And I think if you, again, if you look back over this past year, you see every marginally positive development in the economy has been interpreted that this has happened. So first, oh, they dropped COVID controls. That means they don't care about this stuff and it's growth all out. And no. So then, beginning of this year, the new premier, Li Chang, he made all these nice comments about the private sector 
when he was appointed. They're like, ah, see, new administration, you know, we're back to the good old days. Eh, no. Then we had the Politburo meeting saying, oh, we need to do more to support growth. And people said, oh, look, finally they've seen the light and it's going to be off to the races again. It wasn't. Most recent one, you know, Xi Jinping went to Shanghai and people said, oh, look, this is a signal. There's now there's, you know, more focus on economic growth. I think basically all of these interpretations have been wrong, and people will probably continue to make this kind of interpretation in the future, and it's still going to be wrong in the future. So that's my prediction. So I think the old system where you have this decentralized pursuit of high growth and you kind of tolerate anything as long as it gets growth, this is gone. She has killed it. He's not going to bring it back. But at the same time, I think it's true that they haven't figured out what the exact balance they want is between growth and these other concerns, between growth and security is the way you put it. It's being renegotiated. It's in flux. And so that's why I think right now it's a super interesting moment for Chinese economic policy, right, which is what I look at every day. There's this huge pressure. There's huge political pressure, these huge economic pressure. So the economic problems are very serious. And the political constraints are also very binding. So they need to come up with some new ideas. They need to come find ways to help the economy that are going to be consistent with these new political priorities. They have to get growth, but they have to get growth in a way that's compatible with this kind of objective of we need to restructure the economy in a way to help us prevail in the global competition with the U.S. So I think it's a very interesting moment. It's a very uncertain moment. Almost certainly, China's going to come up with some new things to surprise us. As a result of these intense pressures, it's not guaranteed that the balance they find is going to be the perfect one or that it's going to generate the kind of growth outcomes that people want or expect. It is a moment of kind of flux and change, I would say, in the Chinese system. Maybe that's a cop-out. It's the truth. So it may be a cop-out, but I also don't know a better answer. And anyone selling certainty in this moment is going to have a bridge they're going to sell you next as well. So I I find the folks more credible when they're willing to frame it just as you did of this is a moment. You're in Beijing right now, so you'd have a better sense. But I pick up from Chinese friends and interlocutors that same sense of unease where problems China had to be sure, but there was some certainty in the trajectory namely tomorrow is going to be better than today. Your kid's life was going to be better than yours. But even with your own lifetime, you were going to have likely ample opportunities for improvement. And that window feels to be collapsing. And I can absolutely see the desire of many to get back to the old growth model. Again, all the pathologies and problems it had, it also had a lot to offer. I think most Chinese and we're definitely in new territory. But again, I'm just so glad, Andrew, that you're thinking and writing about this. I would like to say that all audience members should go shake their couch cushions and find some money to become clients of GovCult Dragonomics. I realize that's probably unrealistic for most. So luckily, Andrew, you are writing frequently and I think with great nuance about a lot of these challenges on your blog, The Tangled Woof. If people are thinking, what the hell does the tangled woof mean? You'll have to go to andrewbatson.com. There is an explanation of what that means, but can't recommend your analysis enough, Andrew, and really look forward to reading what you write next. So thank you for your insights. Thanks for your writing and thanks for your time today. Thanks so much, Jude. It was a really great conversation. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, the Asia Chessboard, China Power, 
the Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 